Welcome to the Wealth Experience podcast series where our subject matter experts provide the latest updates on what's happening in the world around us. Brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. This podcast is an excerpt from a live call recorded earlier in June featuring Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. The views expressed here are those of Dr. White and not those of BMO Private Wealth, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good day, everybody. Welcome to uh, the special call on the topic du jour, um, medical environment that we're in. And so uh, my name is Sylvain Brisbois. I'm a Senior Vice President and National Sales Manager for BMO Private Wealth. I'm pleased to be moderating today's call, a special event we have organized for our valued clients on a subject top of mind for us all, the medical realities of COVID-19, where we're at, and what the future has in store. Uh, joining me today is Dr. John White, who will share his unique perspective on the pandemic. And of course, we will leave time at the end for some Q&A with our clients. Dr. White is a board-certified practicing physician who has been communicating to the public as well as the private sectors on health and health policy issues for nearly 25 years. As someone who's been a regulator, a researcher, an educator, a media executive, Dr. White brings a unique perspective, having spent time in government, academia, and the private sector. He is currently Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, and Dr. White is a frequent commentator on healthcare topics and has written extensively on the medical and lay press, including the two best-selling books. He writes a monthly column for WebMD magazine, hosts a podcast that often talks about the latest trends in medical innovation, and today, sir, you are our guest, and so the tables have turned for you. Dr. White, thank you for being with us, and welcome today. Well, thank you, Sylvain. I'm happy to be with you. Fantastic. We want to drill down on what COVID-19 means to us uh, and now and in the future. And medically speaking, uh, you've got a catchy theme uh, that you call the four T's, uh, being transmission, testing, treatment, and technology. So let's start with the first T, transmission. When the outbreak started, there was an enormous attention given to how the virus was transmitted. How has it changed, and what are the right measures to keep us as safe as possible, and if and when we do leave our homes? Sure. Well, bonjour, everyone. And, and just for context, you know, as of this morning, in Canada, there were 93,000 cases with roughly 7,500 deaths, the majority of cases and deaths in Quebec and Toronto. But the good news is, in terms of the rate of new cases, they really peaked in early May, and we've seen this decrease in the number of cases, and that's primarily because of our understanding of transmission. So we know it's a respiratory virus, and what we've learned over time is that it's less infectious by surfaces, meaning you're not going to likely catch coronavirus by touching a doorknob, by, you know, pushing a button on the elevator. The risk really is through coming into contact with respiratory droplets. So as we think about transmission, how we reduce our risk, we really need to think about the number of persons that we're around, trying to keep that below 10 to 20. You know, we want to think of 
the place that we're at, a crowded restaurant with poor ventilation is going to increase the risk of transmission more so than if you were outside doing some fun summer activity. We still always want to continue to practice physical distancing. And I have to tell you, Canada has been very good about calling it physical distancing instead of social distancing. So it's that two meters. And then really, Sylvan, one area where we really have learned a lot about transmission is time. And that goes back to that we're not going to catch it just by touching a surface. It's really about 15 to 20 minutes of prolonged exposure. That's what's going to increase your risk. And because it's a respiratory virus, it's coming through coughing and sneezing. That's why it's so important to wear those facial coverings, those facial masks. So that's why we don't want to have a long line in the grocery store. So, you know, you're all of a sudden standing next to someone, you know, for a period of time and, and, and they're breathing on you. That's why we talk about, you know, being in a crowded restaurant, you know, can be challenging. So it's really understanding the method of transmission, which increases your risk. And some of it does vary based on your own individual risk. If you have cancer, if you have diabetes, if you're immunocompromised, you have to be even more cautious. But people can, you know, breathe a little easier in terms of you probably don't have to wipe off your packages and your groceries come in, but you still want to wear that mask. You still want to do that physical distancing. You still want to do that hand washing. Those are going to be the ways that you're going to protect yourself and protect your family members in your community. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really interesting. Now, let me ask you this. Summer is coming. People are starting to go back to work here slowly. Does that mean anything different for us? You know, as we all start to get closer to one another physically, and we have to acknowledge, and in some offices and some settings of business, such as retail, it's going to be harder to do all of those things all of the time. So we may see an increase in the number of cases. But we also have to remember 80 to 90% of people that contract coronavirus do okay. Doesn't mean it's a walk in the park. But it does mean that the overwhelming majority of people are going to survive it. But as we think about returning to work, we still want to think about, you know, if we have the opportunity to work at home, we should. I always tell patients, and I still see patients, if you're not feeling well, now's not the time to be brave, right? A lot of people are like, I want to get back. I'm tired of staying in. I'm going to go in and do my part. Well, you know what? Do your part by staying home. If you have fever, if you have cough, if you have shortness of breath, and even going back to work, you still practice that hand washing. You still practice all the things we've been talking about, social distancing, wearing a facial covering. And then you have to choose your activities carefully. If you're choosing, you know, fun summer activities, you're going to think about, you know, how many people am I around? Am I going to be outside versus inside? Can I still maintain distancing and limit the amount of time. I think in the office setting, and I think this is going to be good news, we're going to have fewer conference room meetings with, you know, fewer people and shorter amount of time. Because that's where you think about where's the risk. If I'm sitting next to someone less than a meter away and we're turned towards each other facing um, each other, talking, talking loudly perhaps without facial covering, that's where we're going to have increased risk. So you need to remember what we've been doing and put it into the context 
as we are reopening, which is important because there have been unintended consequences in terms of delayed procedures and in terms of, you know, our health care and delayed services. Really insightful, and so that's uh, that's excellent advice on transmission. Let's move to, to testing now. How is Canada doing compared to other developed countries with testing as a whole? Is our antibody testing reliable, and when is it the best time to be testing, and, and how often should be testing? There's a bunch of questions there, but can yeah. you speak to us about that a little bit? Sure. And when it comes to testing, we have to think about diagnostic testing versus antibody testing. And I want to give Canada credit for really having been out there as a true leader in addressing coronavirus early on with testing. So they truly made testing available to many more people than other countries around the world, including, you know, the United States and North America. They didn't have all these requirements of a doctor's note. If anyone wanted uh, a test, for the most part, they really could get the test, diagnostic test. And that was important in terms of understanding how widespread it was and if there were pockets to address areas of high penetration of the virus. So Canada has done very well in terms of diagnostic testing. And I also want to point out, because there's been at times issues with tests, and Canada did have a better test from the beginning, but we also have to think about advancements and innovation. In January, we didn't have any of these tests, either diagnostic or antibody testing, and they've been iterative, meaning they've had to evolve and have next generation. So there's the diagnostic test that tells me if I have symptoms, do I have coronavirus? And that's typically the swab uh, that's going to be in, in your nose, and you really, that's the time, you know, to, to self-quarantine. Antibody testing isn't to detect if you have COVID-19 now. It's to tell me whether you got it several weeks ago, whether you had been exposed. And without giving an immunology lesson, there are different types of antibodies that occur in response to an infection. There's something called IgM and IgG. Most of the antibody tests measure IgG, which comes about seven to 10 days after you've been infected. So what we're, and it lasts a long time. So what we actually tell most people, antibody testing is really something that you should be doing two to three weeks after your symptoms resolve, uh, or if you didn't, don't have any symptoms and you think you might have been exposed. Completely different test. There's point-of-care testing, which means you go and you get a, a finger prick, versus you can go to a lab where they draw blood. And I'm going to tell you what the data are. The data are that the point-of-care testing have wide variability in accuracy. And I might tell you it's 90% sensitive and 90% specific, and that relates to false positives and false negatives. That's actually not very high. You need to have 99% sensitivity, 99% specificity, because the prevalence of the disease is probably 4-5%, higher in, in some provinces, lower in others. And, and that's going to impact its accuracy. And what we do know, there are lots of false positives, even with the 99% accuracy. So if you get a positive antibody test, you need to get it again and to confirm it. And you may remember we talked about these certificates of immunity. We don't talk about them as much. 
We do believe there's a high likelihood that if you have antibodies to coronavirus, COVID-19, you probably have some degree of protection. That's really what we want to know. We see it in other similar coronaviruses, in SARS, in MERS. We don't know that for sure, but that's what we think. The challenge with the tests are they're not as accurate as they need to be right now. So even if you have a positive antibody test, you've done it twice and it's still positive, you still want to practice those measures. There might come a time when we say people with positive antibody tests have more immunity uh, than we might have thought, and, and they may be able to go out and about and, and be more of those first-line responders. But if you're thinking about an antibody testing, it's really about two to three weeks after your symptoms resolve, and you still don't want to change your behavior. It's really more kind of from an epidemiologic perspective right now. Okay, very good. And we've uh, so that speaks to reporting and testing and flagging. You've under, undoubtedly heard the news this week about how uh, our hospitals fails to flag about 700 COVID cases to our public health units through what seems to be nothing other than a communication breakdown. Can you comment on that uh, challenge? Yeah, and, and I still see patients, and unfortunately, there are always breakdown in communication in healthcare settings through, of course, no ill will. And these were cases, hundreds of cases, you said about 700, primarily in the Toronto area, which we know is the second most prevalent case in terms of cases, because there was a mix-up primarily between two hospitals. So these were positive tests that were completed as far back as April, but the 12 public health units involved were only notified about this oversight in the past few days. And, and that has been a challenge because potentially there have been thousands of people who are not traced by public health workers, and that likely have led to wider spread of the coronavirus in recent weeks. And, and that's unfortunate. These breakdowns in communication happen. We're all learning from it. You know, many institutions have been overwhelmed by the number of cases, so I'm not going to criticize. It's, the big issue is understanding why there was a breakdown, improving the process, and still now trying to find those persons in, through contact tracing. But it, it is a big oversight, and I'm going to be honest. It probably exposed persons that may not have, you know, needed to be exposed to coronavirus. Very good. I want to get back to contact tracing in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the third T, which is treatment. Scientists around the world are working on potential treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. And we know there's several companies are working on antiviral drugs, some of which are already in use against other illnesses to treat people who have COVID. Other companies are working on vaccines that could be used as a preventative measure against the disease. And so what are your thoughts on treatment? And when will we finally be able to say that we've got a vaccine? Yeah, and I'm going to give it partly from my perspective of having worked five years at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as well as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the United States. In terms of treatment, I think there is much better progress. And again, it goes to, in terms of medical innovation, think where we were in January. We were even talking about or even knew about this novel coronavirus. And here today, there are about 150 
different drugs through various stages of clinical trials in terms of addressing COVID-19. And we often hear about just a few in the news, and many of the early ones that we've talked about, hydroxychloroquine, have not panned out. But the important element here is that many of these drugs, in the United States at least, were done through an emergency use authorization, so we want to get it out there. But the important point about this is we have to rely upon data, especially in a public health emergency. We don't forget about peer review. We don't forget about objectivity. And the reason why I think we're further along in treatment is because we do have a lot of safety and efficacy data on current treatment options for drugs that are going to be used off-label. But we need to understand what the right dose is and what conditions and what is the right patient population. Even drugs, as we've seen with remdesivir, they did change an endpoint in terms of changing mortality to terms of how many days perhaps in a hospital or on a ventilator. We've understood more about the treatment of COVID-19 in the hospital, especially in terms of ventilator settings. But I think we actually have made significant progress in terms of potential treatment options. And that's what I'm most optimistic about when we think about, you know, how are we going to treat this condition, especially in those, remember, those that have to go to the hospital. You know, most people are going to be okay on their own, although it's going to be a tough course. Assuming treatment and vaccinations are discovered here, how long does the social distancing and self-isolation and other preventative measures stick around? Will, will we still need to be thoughtful about that? I think in terms of treatments, we're still going to need to be thoughtful about you know, physical distancing and some of these other measures, although I think, you know, they may be moderated to some degree as we get more effective treatments. But in terms of the vaccine that I wanted to talk about is I know many folks around the world are very optimistic and very hopeful about a vaccine, you know, in the fall or in early 2021. Many people have been talking about it. But I'm going to tell you, I do have some concerns just knowing the history of vaccine trials. Usually it doesn't happen right the first time, the second time, often the third time. It often takes decades to find a successful vaccine for a virus. That doesn't mean that we're not a step ahead and we have progress. And decisions are going to be made in the next few weeks without having all the endpoints that we need to put in production, just in case then we'll be ready. But there is a lot of ifs in those situations. And the reason why I point this out is I think we're further along in more effective treatment options than perhaps we'll be in vaccine development. We do have several candidates that are still, you know, in clinical trials, especially early on. So there, there are multiple options, but I'm not as optimistic as some others that we'll have something in the fall. And certainly when we're talking about it, we're talking about billions ultimately of doses. And you know what often becomes the challenge? Even if we get it in production, it's about the number of vials that we need. It's about the number of syringes. It's about the number of gloves to address it. And I think it's going to be important how we communicate this to the public. We don't want to talk about rushing development because, you know, there's more and more data that's talking about potential concerns that this is rushed and then folks won't ultimately get the vaccine. But if we did have a vaccine or if we had herd immunity, which means people were infected and survived, 
that's going to allow us to decrease much of social distancing. We're not there yet. We're really going to have to see over the next few months. Sounds like we still have to be respectful of, of the guidance that we're getting. And so I want to get back to, to tracing, which, uh, which I think would fall under your fourth T, technology. Mm -hmm. uh, technology is primarily relating to, to tracing transmission. And, and Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, calls contact tracing an absolutely critical public health measure as we go into the next phase and the next steps of living with, with this COVID-19. So a few questions on that. Can you sure. take us through what is contact tracing yeah. and, and how is that done? Yeah. And, you know, you notice we have a lot of T's, Dr. Tan. <laughs> uh, right. Tracing, and, transmission. Absolutely. And then I'm going to talk about Prime Minister Trudeau. So a lot of T's. And the Prime Minister has talked about engaging in discussions with the private sector about an app. But if we think about what contact tracing is, it's really kind of this old school detective work, which is used to break the chains of transmission. And it's really one of the oldest public health tactics that we have dating back from centuries. And basically what's happening is as soon as I know it's, if you uh, were identified as having the virus around, I'd want to then work immediately to isolate you and find out who you've interacted with. And it's almost like we have to do this spider web of transmission, right? So we need to follow it from person to person. So I need to know who you've been around that perhaps might have been infected. Who did you come into contact with physically? And historically, that's been done by persons trained where we interview you and then identify those folks that you came into contact with. And given the scope of the epidemic, it's been very challenging to have, you know, these actual workers be able to identify all of these persons, especially when you're in an area of the country in certain provinces where there's a lot of cases. It's really just overwhelming and almost impossible to identify all the contacts. So there's been a lot of talk about the role of tech. Some of it has been with Apple and Google. So you could download an app and you could identify yourself by, you know, a certain type of, you know, anonymous number that you have COVID-19. And then most of these are actually using Bluetooth technology as opposed to a location a tracking device. So any phone that came into contact with you over a period of time would receive notification that you came into contact with someone who has COVID-19 and that you should self-isolate and you should get tested. If that, you know, isn't able to be enacted, that certainly would decrease uh, the impact of COVID-19. The challenges with it is, you know, Bluetooth can go through walls, can go through, you know, floors of apartment buildings. People are always taking other people's Wi-Fi. So in theory, there can be a lot of false alerts. But the key to this is that typically 60 to 70% of the population has to opt in. If you don't opt in and participate, then you can get notification. If I don't participate, if I'm infected, then I'm not going to be able to find other people around. That has been one of the biggest challenges. And I will tell you, in, in the United States, there's been very slow adoption of the app. We also have seen this in Singapore, where less than 20% of people have opted to use this, you know, contact tracing app. There's lots of issues about privacy, 
There's concerns about how your information is going to be used, especially through the role of private industry in the United States. In in Canada as well, there's been concerns about how technology companies are using our data, sharing our data. So it's, it's a great idea, and I think one that has merit, but we're not quite there. So there's no doubt that technology can do it. It's the issue of whether the public is willing to adopt this technology for their use to, you know, really help a, a public health crisis. So there's been some surveys where people have offered uh, a more willingness to do it if it would help reopen the area. There's a lot of concerns. So we still have to have as a plan to identify and hire being old school, these, these contact tracers that really are going to help break that transmission. Interesting. I never thought we'd be speaking about the day where, where phones uh, and apps would be uh, the enablers for us to get out of a crisis okay. like this. This is uh, unbelievable information. Finally, let me ask you a, a double question here. We hear round two of COVID uh, mm-hmm. is going to be a given. Uh, we speculated on that for a while, and now more and more people are speaking about uh, that being an unavoidable truth. Is Canada prepared? Mm-hmm. Uh, and are we gambling a little bit here by reopening the economies at this point? What, what's your view on this? I think Canada is is much better prepared for a potential second wave. And there's lots of reasons why that is. So, you know, a certain percentage of the population, you know, has contracted COVID-19 versus, you know, three months ago. So there is going to be some herd immunity, not as much as we would like. I mean, ideally, you want, you know, greater than 60%. I don't think any country is going to be there. Some provinces might be close, such as Quebec uh, or even Toronto. But some people are going to have herd immunity, so there's going to be some protection, right? So some people will have developed antibodies. So the entire population isn't to the same degree at risk. We're further along in treatment options, and I think we'll have even better treatment options by the time the fall comes around. We really have seen progress even just in the last few weeks. And we're in a much better place in terms of surge capacity of hospitals, if you remember. That was a big concern that our hospitals would not be able to deal with the serious cases. So on all of those fronts, we've made progress, which is going to allow us to manage the condition better. So I'm more optimistic about where we will be in the fall. You know, given where we are on a vaccine, if we had one, that'll help as well. But that that is progress in in terms of where we are in, in terms of being prepared. In terms of the issue of reopening, you know, we have to acknowledge that there have been unintended consequences. You know, it's been issues of, you know, people can't afford food. They're not going to be able to support their family. You know, there's greater issues and potential of homelessness. All of the social determinants of health uh, are going to be impacted in terms of people able to go and follow up with their doctor's appointments, to continue to get care, their screenings, to prevent cancer. So we have to have some balance. And I think uh, a slow and steady process of reopening based on science and epidemiology is important. You know, we just can't stay locked in for nine months and say, well, wait till there's a vaccine. Well, what if a vaccine doesn't come? So we have to find that middle ground where we're able to live with the virus, protect those especially at greater risk, such as the elderly and underlying health conditions, and then continue to iterate. But we don't want all those unintended consequences 
uh, as well as part of our mitigation strategies. Okay, that's excellent information and, and a ton of it. Dr. White, uh, this has been incredibly informative uh, and what a session it has been. Your insights have given us clarity and helped us understand what's in store as this pandemic plays out. We're grateful for your time and on behalf of BMO Private Wealth and all of our clients listening today, thank you. Thank you very much. And to our clients, thank you. We strive to bring you meaningful content on a variety of topics and we hope you've found this call to be another great information and a nice gesture for us to share and appreciate uh, the value and thanking you for the trust that you have placed in us. So to everybody on the line today, stay well and have a wonderful day. This podcast series has been brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. Please join us again.